covenant means a binding arrangement between two people. I do promise and covenant to be your loving and faithful husband in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others. You're my only life's option for as long as we both shall live. This is Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. In the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he refers to marriage as a profound mystery. It reflects the great mystery of the church being the bride of Christ. So how can we live out this deep theological plan in our everyday lives? Here's David with a heart-to-heart talk about marriage. First of all, from Genesis, the second chapter, verse 24, this is probably the most important passage in the Bible about marriage. It's in creation, pre-fall, God's original intent for what he wanted marriage to be, the word of the Lord. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they, they shall become one flesh. God's original design in creation before the fall, one man, one woman in a committed heterosexual monogamous relationship. It is clear in the scripture. Then the most in-depth passage about marriage is Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 32, the word of the Lord. Paul wrote, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body." Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul quotes Genesis 2.24. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And then finally, from 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, about singles, Paul says, I wish that all were as myself I am. He was single, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So let's look, first of all, at the history of marriage in the United States. When the pilgrims and others came to this country, many of them formed America out of a Judeo-Christian ethic. Uh, They saw the scripture as the word of God, and marriage was a deeply important part of their lives. But what you need to know from the beginning of our nation, 
Marriage was all about we, not me. The purpose of marriage primarily was for a man and a woman to commit themselves forever, raise their children in a committed permanent relationship, Genesis 2.24, and then the nation would be as strong as the family. Psalm 127.1 says, unless the Lord builds the house, and that word house can also be translated nation, unless the Lord builds the family, unless the Lord allows that to be the foundation of a nation, all those who strive are laboring in vain. The, the family's structure, our forefathers believed, would be the foundation for a healthy nation. And that was basically the case until the 1950s. And then in the late 1950s, there began to be introduced into American life this whole idea of individual freedom like never before. And there was the sexual revolution. Those of you old enough remember that. And then in the 1970s, there was introduced something called no-fault divorce. It was completely unusual from what had preceded it. In fact, beforehand, even as late as the 1950s, there were newspaper headlines that would say, divorce say in automobile accident. Can you imagine that being done today? That was because in that day, being divorced was a, a social stigma. There was a moral consensus against it. There was a societal pressure to stay married that was suddenly lifted in the 1960s and 70s. Now, by the way, I'm not supporting that being a headline for those of you who are divorced. I want to approach this subject with great compassion, knowing that many of you have gone through that horrific experience, and you're hurt by it. And I want to offer you grace as we walk through this message together. But historically, that's what happened. And so the floodgates in the 1970s were opened to divorce being something that was nobody's fault and everybody could get it and divorces started to skyrocket. In the 1980s, cohabitation started to occur. Uh, people looked at marriage as kind of not being necessary, so let's just live together without needing a piece of paper and being able to try out the marriage like you try out a car with a lease. And if it didn't work out, eh, you just split up. If it does work out, well, it might lead toward marriage, maybe, maybe not. And then in the 1990s and into the 2000s, we've had what is the most serious threat to marriage in America today, and that is the redefinition of marriage altogether. Now, why is that a danger? Because we see in Western Europe and other societies what happens when marriage becomes non-essential, when family becomes secondary. Uh, you see social ills coming into the nation that we are yet to experience in our fullness here in American life. So that, that's the history of American marriages. Uh, the stats, you may know, in, in 1970, 90% of all children were born to a mom and dad. Now it's 60%. In African-American homes, it's 30%. And before those of us who are Caucasian start to gloat, you need to know that 60% is quickly moving downward. I predict within the next couple of decades, we'll be right there too. Unless there's a revival and God changes people's lives. We've also seen marriage in America in the 2000s move from the whole idea of me, a we, that we exist for the purpose of marriage, allowing our nation to be whole to marriage now being for me. It's to meet my desires. It's for my self-fulfillment. 
And when marriage starts moving from we to me, you have all kinds of problems that come with that, mostly being that now when individuals move into a marriage relationship, they have what I call slurpy marriages. The slurpy marriage is I drink from the other person because that other person is supposed to meet my needs. And then the other person thinks you're supposed to meet my needs. And both people trying to drink from one another to have each other meet the deepest needs of their heart, eventually they drink each other dry. Let me state it right now from the very beginning. God never intended your spouse to meet the deepest longings of your heart. God never intended your mate to be the person who gives your life meaning. So having understood the history of marriage, having understood the statistics of marriage, that 50% of marriages now end in divorce, let me give you this statistic. 62% of all people married in America today, and this isn't talked about a lot, say they are very happy in their marriages. Very happy. So marriage has not necessarily gone out of style. Moreover, in its ubiquity, that word means everybody's doing it, it's everywhere, people still want to get married, don't they? So even though marriage has gone through terrible trauma, people still are happy in it, and people still want to get married. So let's look at marriage, and let's try to understand what God intended it to be. Let me say from the outset, first of all, marriage is God's idea. Repeat that. Is God's idea. We didn't think it up. It's God's idea. So we need to be very careful when we try to redefine something that God defined. Secondly, there's order in the marriage. If you look at Genesis 2.24, a man and a woman leave their families, and then they come together in a public worship service. That's the hold fast to his wife idea. And they make extraordinary vows to one another that if you're sane, you should think twice about. That I, David, take you, Marilyn, to be my wife, and I do promise and covenant. It's not a commitment, it's a covenant. A covenant means a binding arrangement between two people. I do promise and covenant to be your loving and faithful husband in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others. You're my only life's option for as long as we both shall live. Back door's locked from the outside. I'm in this thing forever. Doesn't matter how I feel. Doesn't matter our circumstances. I'm in this in a covenant relationship with you forever. There's an order. And after that public service, then the two shall become one flesh. That's the sexual arrangement. Notice the order. Leave, public ceremony, then sexual. We've got it all whacked out in America. Nobody follows that order. And whenever I teach it, I feel like a voice crying in the wilderness. Every movie, every television program practically denies what I just said. But I'm not about trying to please public people. I'm trying to teach God's word. This is what God wants for people who radically follow Jesus. That's his order. And the covenant seals two people together. So in the most extensive study of scripture, uh, in Scripture, in the Bible, about marriage, Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 32. Let's begin looking at marriage, first of all, with verse 32. Paul says, this mystery is profound. Marriage is a real mystery, and everybody who believes that, raise your hand. <laughs> it's, in fact, the word that's used here is mega mysterion. 
It means mega mystery. Marriage is really a mystery that God would bring together two so opposite people who have different moods and different life cycles and different ways of looking at life. And he brings them together through Jesus and makes them one flesh. That is a mega mystery, according to Paul. And the way it happens is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The analogy that Paul uses here is Jesus being the head of the church, and by the proclamation of the gospel, those of us who used to have dead, stony hearts that only sought for me now are dramatically changed by the power of the Spirit, made one with Jesus Christ in a union relationship, and literally Jesus flows through me, and I flow through Jesus. It is a mega mysterion. It's a mega mystery how that happens. Similarly, Paul says, that's what happens between a man and a woman as they receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, and their hearts are changed. They come together in a mega mysterion, in a mega mystery, where David Chadwick starts flowing through Maryland, and Maryland starts flowing in me, and, and we literally become, over the years, one person. I can't explain it. I don't understand it. But after almost 36 years, that's what's happened. So if you're going to understand marriage according to the scripture, first of all, let's look at life together. Starting not with verse 21, which most people do when they look at this section of scripture, but with verse 18. For that's where it really starts if you look at your chapter headings in the Bible. Verse 18 says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Marriage begins when each person in the marriage relationship does not look to anything except Jesus to be their life's source. Not wine, not alcohol, not drugs, not pornography, not anything not sports, not job, not power, not prestige, not anything but Jesus. Because all of that leads to debauchery. It leads to selfishness. It leads to me. But I'm filled with the Holy Spirit when I receive Jesus. My life is under the power of the third person of the Godhead. The very Godhead himself lives inside of me. And he is my source of life. He is my reason for living. In that relationship... With God, life's two most important questions are answered for me. Who am I? I'm David Chadwick, but I'm a child of God, filled with his Holy Spirit. Union life with Jesus, my Savior. And why am I here on earth? To glorify him, to live for him, to let his life flow through me to a desperately dying world and to advance the kingdom of God. So marriage begins, folks, with two people who are not drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but two people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's where marriage begins. It begins with two committed followers of Jesus who come together with their mission to help each other prepare for eternity. That's what God's design here when he says for husbands with their loving of their wives, sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water and the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what God wants. So marriage begins with two people filled with the Holy Spirit who come together to help each other prepare for eternity. 
to live as people without spot or blemish. Now, with that having been said, that makes verse 21 make sense, doesn't it? Where it says, after two people are not only filled with the Holy Spirit, but they sing together and make joy together and make melody together to the Lord with psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. Then in verse 21, it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So marriage begins with two people who have submitted themselves to Jesus Christ, who are under the lordship of Jesus Christ, who have the reverence of Jesus Christ filling their hearts, and that's what brings them together. They are uniquely different, but they're both under the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ. Have you got that? Two broken, foibled people forgiven through the gospel of grace who have the lordship of Jesus Christ in their hearts coming together out of reverence for Christ, submitting to one another. So there is an egalitarianism that begins with marriage, according to the Bible. Two equal participants who have submitted themselves to Christ, right? Okay, then the next step goes, in my opinion, to husbands. I'll come back to you wives in just a moment. Husbands, what are you supposed to do? The husbands are supposed to be the head of their wife as Christ is the head of the church. This is Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Thanks for listening. Coming up, David joins me in the studio continuing our conversation about Davidisms. We'll be right back. I'm Mark McManus with Moments of Hope Church's Ministry Minute, focusing on ministries that have a positive impact on our community. With me in the studio today is Tony Marciano, Executive Director of the Charlotte Rescue Mission. Tony, tell us about the Charlotte Rescue Mission. Mark, at the Charlotte Rescue Mission, everything we do is about transformation. With a focus on individuals struggling with addiction, we uniquely work from the inside out to address the root cause. And we accomplish that by providing professional, Christian residential recovery services free of charge. Now let me back up for just a moment and explain all that to you. When I say the word transformation, I get those marching orders from John 6, very interesting chapter of the Bible, where on day one Jesus feeds 5,000 people. That night the disciples float across the lake. Jesus follows them by walking across the lake, and the next day the crowd gets in boats and follows them. But on day two, Jesus chooses not to feed them and begins to preach at them and they all leave. I think in that one chapter, it's the heart of God for the poor, where God says on day one, I love you so much, I accept you just as you are. But day two, God is saying, I love you too much to leave you there. And that's the hard work of transformation that we focus on every day at Charlotte Rescue Mission. I mentioned we uniquely work from the inside out to address the root cause, and that root cause is shame. Guilt is when I make a mistake, but shame says I am a mistake. And if you knew me, you wouldn't like me. And if God knew me, God wouldn't like me. And then I wrapped it up by saying we address this by providing professional, free, Christian residential recovery services. I like to use the verses out of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18, where the Apostle Paul says that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth. And verse 19 says, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. Mark, I believe firmly that when someone realizes that God's love is four-dimensional, not three-dimensional, not conditional, but unconditional, when they have that aha moment that God loves them, all the shame in their soul goes away because they know they are fully accepted by God, not for what they've done, but simply because God loves them. And that's what we do every day at Charlotte Rescue Mission. 
love to have you get involved. Please go to our webpage, charlotterescuemission.org, for ways that you can impact the people we serve. I'm Jen Houston, and with me today is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, Jen. It's great being with you. Hope you're well. I am well. Well, this week, we have been taking a deeper dive into phrases and statements you call Davidisms. Do you want to explain what those are real quick? I I will again. Uh, They are little pithy phrases I've learned through the years from mentors, coaches, my dad, other influential people in my life, sometimes something that I actually thought up, and as I have stated them, people have said, you need to write all those down. So I have, and actually we're going to be doing them over the next year or so, giving them to people. They can also be received in a written form if people want to go to momentsofhopechurch.org. They can subscribe to these Davidisms that will arrive in their inbox at 7 a.m. They're biblically rooted. All truth is God's truth, but they're ways to help people have common sense today as they mentor their kids, mentor other people, or just try to live this life faithfully. Well, I have very much enjoyed them. And today I've heard that this is one of the most well-remembered ones. So would you talk to us a little bit about what is the most often spoken word in heaven? Jen, this may be the Davidism that most people remember more than any other one. The most often spoken word in heaven is going to be Oh, I can hear it now. (laughs) As God explains to us what he was doing when we went through whatever we're going through, we're going to say, oh, and as we eavesdrop on other conversations that other people are having with God asking why and God explains, he's going to explain and then we're going to hear, oh, from other people as well. You know, the truth is there's much that happens during our lifetime that we will never fully understand. Because while on earth, it's as if we're looking through a mirror dimly. That's 1 Corinthians 13, 12a. You know, Jen, in ancient times, mirrors were made of polished bronze, and therefore, one's reflection would often be dim, unlike modern mirrors, which Mm -hmm. give crystal clear clarity. That's what Paul was trying to say. Sometimes we can only see what God is doing partially here on this side of eternity. But one day. Paul also says we will see Jesus face to face. That's 1 Corinthians 13, 12b. In heaven, the mirror becomes fully illuminated. We're able to see our life through God's eyes from his vantage point, fully comprehend his plan for our lives. We're able to clearly see how he worked all things for good and his glory, Romans 8, 28. So when God explains to us what he was doing with our lives time and time again and why he was doing what he was doing, we'll say, oh, 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 (laughs) because now we'll fully understand. Everything we question will finally make sense. And we will praise God for his goodness, for his grace, for his mercy. It's why the most often spoken word in heaven is going to be Jen. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) As he explains to us why he was doing what he is doing. Well, I can see it now. And I feel like this is what is going to throw all of us into more and more worship of who he is and his goodness. 
And it also shows his sovereign power and how he's weaving everything like a thread into a beautiful tapestry that everyone will be able to see, glorify and praise God for his goodness and life. It's why, again, one more time, the most often spoken word in heaven is going to be, Jen? Oh. Oh, everybody say it. Oh, because you're going to say it a lot on the other side of eternity. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much, David. God bless you, Jen. Thank you as well. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. Today's message is from our online worship service, and you can be a part of that service each Sunday morning at both 9 and 11 o'clock by going to momentsofhopechurch.org. And while you're online, be sure to sign up for David's daily Moments of Hope delivered every morning to your inbox. And also check out David's weekly HopeCast. They're both free and available through our website. Again, that web address is momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston encouraging you to reach out to a neighbor today. 